1970s, an asset management company called Paxworld launched a sustainable mutual fund meant to give their clients the option of investing in companies that were not involved in the Vietnam War, a means of putting their money where their beliefs were, basically, when it came to that hotly contested military conflict. Around that same time, a list of socially responsible companies was published in the academic journal Business and Society, so folks who were keen to invest in stocks not connected to a variety of social ills, as defined at the time and by the folks behind that list, could avoid putting their money into such companies, even indirectly. In 1977, an African-American preacher, the Reverend Leon Sullivan, developed a set of principles which became known as the Sullivan Principles, which were meant to help companies that opposed apartheid in South Africa apply economic pressure to entities instigating and supporting it. Apartheid was an institutionalized system of racial oppression and bias built into the South African government from 1948 until the early 1990s. It was promoted as a means of separating non-white South Africans from white South Africans, and the outcome of this legalized set of divisions was that non-white South Africans had fewer rights, fewer means of influencing politics, and were prevented overtly and covertly from being able to own things, attain power, or even pursue relationships across racial lines. So this was systematized racism that even during a period of heightened global systematized racism compared to today seemed extreme to many people around the world, and many of those people wanted to see this system disappear. Thus, the Sullivan principles were meant to provide folks who wield power, and in particular, any type of economic power, a means of applying it appropriately so that this system going away became more likely and bare minimum, so that their financial resources would not be backing, even indirectly, that system. Sullivan knew something about what he was talking about, as he was a member of the board of General Motors, which was one of the largest companies in the United States, but also one of the largest employers of non-white people in South Africa. He saw how folks were being treated, and was in a position of power within a powerful corporation that, despite that power and the company's influence within South Africa, wasn't able to directly change things in the way he thought they should be changed. Mapping out what he wanted to see done then, from his position as someone who knew how things worked and how they might work better, so as to provide more equitable treatment of people across the racial divisions that were baked into the legal system in South Africa, ensured more companies and investors and other people who wielded any kind of economic cudgel could demand the same changes, and as a consequence, unify their efforts toward that goal, even if they weren't working together in a more direct and literal fashion. The principles Sullivan proposed, by modern standards, were not revolutionary or dramatic, but because of how non-white people were treated in South Africa at the time, they seemed very necessary just to get folks up to a basic standard of legal humanity. The principles said that people shouldn't be segregated in their eating, comfort, and work facilities that there should be equal and fair employment practices for all employees at the company, there should be equal pay for all people doing comparable work for the same period of time, there should be proper training programs available for non-white people so they could be included in management and more technical jobs, rather than just manual labor, 
at the number of non-white people in those sorts of higher paid, higher responsibility, higher power positions should be increased. That the quality of life for people, in terms of their housing, transportation, education, health, and so on, should also be improved, wherever and whenever the employer has the ability to make such improvements. And that companies should actively work to get rid of laws and customs that impede social, economic, and political justice. That last point is especially important here, as it has gone on to inform a large number of modern discussions related to this general concept. This is one of the source documents of the formalized modern theory that social, economic, and political justice is something businesses should not only take into consideration, but also actively promote and fight for, in the same way they lobby for things like better economic considerations. Around this same time, a countervailing force in the world of economics was being created by well-known and respected economists like Milton Friedman, who said, in essence, a company's monetary bottom line is the only thing they should be concerned with, and worrying over and acting upon anything non-monetary will lead to worse outcomes for any firms that dabble beyond their monetary corporate jurisdictions. In other words, businesses that get involved with things that are not directly tied to their industry and earning as much money as possible will tend to do worse than those who stay focused on the money. And thus, investors should only invest their money in the focused on business category. This way of thinking, often referred to as the Friedman Doctrine, redefined the concept of social responsibility by claiming that business owners were doing the right thing by society and the people in society by ensuring shareholders, folks who buy stocks in the company, but also by some definitions people who buy their goods and services, earn the most money possible from their investments and enjoy better and better products and services at potentially lower and lower prices by sticking with the numbers and revenue figures and not getting involved in political or ideological concerns beyond that. Corporations serve society by being good corporations, measured by the wealth they generate and the quality of whatever it is they produce then, not by dabbling in social issues. These two theories, the Sullivan Principles, which have since been expanded to be more inclusive and global, spreading the same general concepts out so they apply to spaces beyond South Africa and to folks beyond non-white people who are being directly targeted by unfair and racist laws, and the Friedman Doctrine, have gone on to influence business owner behavior and the branding of various companies in the decades since they were originally coined. And that, in turn, has created bipolar approaches to doing business that have ebbed and flowed in popularity with the Friedman Doctrine, by many measures, becoming the most influential in the 80s and 90s, but the Sullivan Principles, arguably, coming back into vogue post-2000, and especially heading into the 2010s, as our awareness of global disparities, workers' rights, and the suffering of other people around the world became more evident, visceral, and interconnected via new technologies, devices, and the media we consume. What I'd like to talk about today is another concept that has emerged in recent years, ESG, that is likewise shaping the ideological investment space, and which is often targeted for criticism by folks on both sides of the Sullivan-Friedman business philosophy spectrum. You're 
listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled, Musk says ESG, quote, an outrageous scam, end quote, after Tesla index exclusion. The headline is referring to Elon Musk, the colorful and controversial founder and CEO of Tesla, SpaceX, and The Boring Company, alongside a slew of other ventures. And the index he's calling an outrageous scam is the ESG index run by Standard & Poor's Global, better known as S&P, which runs, among other things, the S&P 500, which tracks the 500 largest companies listed on U.S. stock exchanges. S&P also runs a popular index that tracks ESG-oriented companies. And in this context, ESG refers to companies that consider environmental, social, and corporate governance impacts alongside financial and shareholder concerns. At the moment, ESG listings, and these sorts of companies are tracked by other indices as well, not just the aforementioned S&P managed index. Those listings encompass something like $35 trillion in assets. This is a popular acronym to have attached to your business dealings right now. The term, though, despite referring to a generally beneficent-seeming bundle of attributes, especially if you're concerned with things beyond your stock market portfolio, is a bit fuzzy. Different companies focus on different aspects of it, and different people, even professionals working in social, environmental, or business governance spaces, will tell you it means somewhat or dramatically different things. The groups that keep track of ESG-related considerations, likewise, use different, usually internally created criteria for determining who's doing well, who's not, and who should thus be included or excluded in these indices and other lists. The trigger for the Musk quote referenced in that Bloomberg piece was a recent perceived snub by the S&P toward Musk's electric car company, Tesla. Tesla was dropped from the index. The folks behind it saying, basically, the car company's score declined a little bit, in large part because the scores of other car companies, which are going increasingly electric and sustainable, have all improved a bit. And Tesla's rankings as measured by the S&P ESG managers has not gone up in a while relative to those other car companies, despite their impressive industry performance, in part because of their consistently poor working conditions, claims of racial discrimination against black employees, and its antagonist and aggressive approach to dealing with an official government probe into multiple deaths and injuries tied to its still-in-the-works but already available to the public autopilot technology. So Tesla is doing impressive stuff in terms of selling a lot of electric cars, which is good for the environment and for pushing the automobile industry forward in terms of electrification. But the company has not done well in terms of treating its employees equitably and fairly, and has done pretty abysmally in terms of corporate governance. So its score dropped a tiny bit relative to other car companies which have tended to do better on those social and corporate governance issues while also slowly improving their electrification metrics. They saw their scores increase. Tesla, consequently, dropped off the list because of those adjustments. The slap in the face, though, and this was a focal point for Musk's public complaint about this index and its approach to deciding who belongs on it, 
was that during the same period Tesla dropped off the list, ExxonMobil, an energy company that is alongside other similarly massive energy companies, quite possibly more responsible than any other entity on the planet for the issues we face with global climate change, actually climbed a bit higher relative to other entities on the list. This led to complaints from Musk and other folks working in ESG and ESG-adjacent spaces that the list is corrupt, flawed, or just pointless, and might even be political rather than objective. Musk's complaints about this delisting arrived around the same time he announced he would be voting Republican, because folks on the political left have become, in his eyes, prejudiced against people who don't share their, in his opinion, radical woke ideology. Folks in environmentally focused spaces, in contrast, have complained about these ESG lists because they celebrate and elevate companies like Exxon for things that, in their eyes, they should not be celebrated or elevated for, like associating them with actually clean, environmentally friendly, and actually, more broadly, socially responsible efforts. It's worth saying at the outset here, that Musk's statement on this topic is almost certainly mostly self-serving. He has created a whirlpool of controversy around his public persona of late and seems to be intentionally whipping up new headlines and news cycles, maybe, according to some analysts at least, to push other controversies he is embroiled in, including a sexual harassment allegation and reports about Tesla's treatment of employees under the rug. And it's a popular pastime for all CEOs of any company and wealthy people in general that have been from their perspective maligned in the eyes of possible consumers and investors to lash out against the journalists, publications, countries, or indices that criticize them, even when those criticisms are arguably justified. So without saying anything about the legitimacy of this delisting from this index, it's important to understand that there are plenty of reasons for Musk to level this allegation for PR purposes that have little or nothing to do with the objective efficacy of ESG investing concepts and tools. Now that said, his criticism did bring to the forefront a slew of issues many people have had with this investment criteria. And that has led to, arguably, a useful discussion of what ESG is even for, whether it achieves its intended purposes, and whether it might be done better in the future. The modern permutation of what became the ESG approach to investment was promoted by the United Nations in 2006, building on the awareness-related success of the circa 2000 UN Global Reporting Initiative. Basically, in 2000, the UN provided independent standards for assessing and reporting upon corporate impact across a variety of environmental, social, and governance metrics. And in 2006, the UN's Principles for Renewable Investment gave folks a means of applying those concepts on a day-to-day -day basis, including at their workplace. Boards tasked with applying these principles arose within governments and companies around the world, and the drafting of the 2015 Paris Agreement, which was meant to help governments make moves to prevent climate change-related catastrophe, nudged more globe-spanning entities toward action. 
in part because it was good branding to do so, in part because many people leading and working at these companies were beginning to see the need for action, and in part because it was becoming pretty clear, due to all this activity within governments and non-government organizations like the UN, that new regulations would soon be implemented that would force them to take sustainability-related action anyway. So they might as well get ahead of those regulations, and maybe even put themselves in a position to help shape them as perceptually socially conscious, green-leaning companies. The term ESG for this bundle of concerns was initially popularized in 2004 in a report worked up for the UN as it was mulling through those aforementioned goals and programs, and it's since become a shorthand term for all kinds of investment angles, primarily focused on some flavor of not being evil though the casual, everyday person's sense of what it means tends to lean more heavily toward the climate-related aspect, the E, rather than S and G, the social and corporate governance aspects of the acronym. This may partially explain some of the outrage Musk and other people felt when Tesla was dropped from this major ESG index, while one of the world's biggest oil companies was allowed to stay. ExxonMobil, according to the standards used by S&P for their ESG rankings, does quite well, despite the fact that they are horrible for the environment, which means they are kicking all kinds of ass socially and in terms of how they're running their company, treating human beings generally well and playing ball with government institutions alongside efforts to improve diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Tesla, in contrast, has arguably been one of the most important catalysts for the electric car push globally, but especially in the car-loving United States. Essentially, nothing was happening in this space in the U.S. till Tesla came along and made the concept of EVs sexy and introduced production models and economics that made sense for bringing the requisite technologies and manufacturing down into a more affordable range. They have not, however been putting much effort into being more inclusive and diverse and providing equity for more people. They've actually done a fairly abysmal job of this by all indications, and part of that is likely the consequence of Musk's political and ideological beliefs, which some have noted came of age, where and when he came of age, within apartheid-era South Africa, growing up in a wealthy family. But it also parallels his oft-stated disdain for anything that seems too touchy-feely and woke, according to his standards for such things, rather than focusing on the raw numbers and economics. Thus, this misalignment of expectation and reality when it comes to what ESG stands for is part of the outrage cycle we're seeing regarding Tesla's delisting and an oil giant's continuing positive ESG ranking. Another way of looking at ESG, though, was voiced by a portfolio manager at an investment management company in a recent Reuters piece on this issue, in which they said, quote, ultimately ESG is a way of identifying and trying to quantify risk, end quote. In essence, measuring environmental, social, and corporate governance-related performance in a company is not just a tool for disinvesting in companies that seem bad for the world in various ways, or for putting our money into companies with values we feel align with our own. It's also a means, and perhaps even primarily a means, for investors to figure out which companies are bulwarked against modern threats, like environmental issues, social issues, and corporate upsets so they can put their money where it's most likely to be safe and generate a profit well into the future. 
the perception that ESG investing is emotion-driven investing, ignoring the raw numbers in favor of touchy-feely, primarily left-leaning issues then, according to this framing of it at least, is wrong. And what's happening, instead, is these numbers, the metrics used to determine who's on these lists and who is not, reflecting the measurement of different types of risk than were being measured back in Milton Freeman's days, they're higher resolution, or maybe just taking new data and considerations into account, variables that were not as pointed and commonly associated with positive investment outcomes a handful of decades ago. And those considerations would seem to be reliant on the fact that more people care about environmental stuff, social justice stuff, and corporate governance-related stuff than they did in the Friedman era of investing. But now that those concerns are baked into the ether, into the social and economic strata in which we exist, there may be no decoupling the two. They're inextricably interwoven, and folks who either can't or refuse to see those numbers will be at a disadvantage in the market moving forward. From this perspective, Musk's inability to see or lack of concern about these issues, which so many other people care about now, is a liability for Tesla, and thus the company's exclusion from this list reflects Musk-related risk and the risk related to the culture he has imbued the company with, rather than anything to do with the company's environmental impact, positive or otherwise. The question, then, is less about Musk and Tesla or any other CEO and the companies they run, and more about whether ESG will take a hit because of this perception-reality disconnect. As Musk is far from the only person who thought or claims to have thought, ESG was primarily an environmental thing. Whether there will be more transparency about how the scores are determined in the future, and whether we might see new indices using standards that are exclusively related to environmental practices in the future which might be favorable for companies like Tesla, led by folks like Musk, whose ideologies lean more toward freedmen on most things, despite also leaning toward some outcomes that have been more traditionally associated, in terms of environmental justice at least, with Sullivan. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Solaris by, I believe his name is pronounced Stanislav Lem. This is a classic piece of Eastern European science fiction, which means in practice that it has informed a whole lot of modern science fiction. And Lem in particular is pretty well known for coining, I guess you would say, ideas that become tropes within this space. And this book, which I believe was turned into a movie, which I haven't seen, so I can't speak to how good that is and how much it aligns with the book, but this book is no different in that regard in terms of what it posits and considers in fiction form about the possibility of different types of alien intelligences beyond what we typically think of when we think of intelligences. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Solaris by Stanislav Lem. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a bundle of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again 
next week. Thank you.